The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy. I'm here with the... The usual cast of characters. Uh, Dr. Fred Gertz is in the studio with us today. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Now, good to be here. Nice to be here. And I have certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional David Rudy. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a family affair today. And retirement income certified professional Daniel Rudy. Good morning. So you can call in with your questions at 356 9397 or you can text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 35153. Five, seven. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS. We are running our Facebook Live, so you can catch that if you are uh, a Facebook type of person. I don't use it all that much myself. Uh, we also want to welcome, as I said, these people turning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Dr. Fred, it seems like this economy is on fire, except not really on fire, but inflation's picking up a little bit. Um, the Fed's personal consumption expenditure, that's what they like to use as their measure of inflation, uh, kind of ticking a little bit above 2% now. That seems to be their target. Unemployment, what, a 39-year low or something like that, and uh, seems to be uh, not abating. Home sales high. Stock market's doing better. Uh Two to five percent higher or so, so much so far in May. I noticed that large cap stocks, which are the biggest companies, are up about three percent year to date. I'm rounding these uh, tech stocks are up about five percent. Very small companies or micro caps are up more than six percent. So the small companies seem to be like this deregulation effect and maybe the tax effect. At least that's what the pundits are saying. And but yet you'd have to argue, guys, that we're probably still in a consolidation phase so far for most of 2018. Not unusual. It's not unusual for these periods to act even uh, last even longer. So it wouldn't surprise me. You know, we could struggle all through the summer. Who knows? Uh, the macro data, as I said, seems to point to expansion. Um, and we just had another interest rate inc- uh, increase, Doctor Fred. Right. Uh, Nobody's really talking about recessions. We're really now everybody's all excited about higher interest rates. Um, you know, the un, what the Fed has, what, a dual mandate, right, to try right. to keep inflation low and to keep unemployment low. Well, we have right. unemployment extremely low. Um, well, right now it's kind of a ideal world because we have uh, very low unemployment and also uh, – low, uh, moderate inflation, which is exactly what they want. Now, the world always doesn't work that way. We've had periods like in the uh, late 70s and early 80s where you had uh, very high uh, of both. So right now is an ideal thing. There used to be something called a, a misery index where you added together the unemployment rate and the uh, inflation rate. So it, uh, sometimes we had a 20 percent uh, misery rate. Now we have like a 5 or 6 percent misery rate, which is really great, but since it's great, no one really talks about it much anymore. Yeah, and but interest rates have been ticking up. We have a 10, uh, 10-year Treasury now above 3%. Uh, we have a two-year Treasury around 25 so that that's kind of narrowing a, a bit. Yeah. This is really the normal, but it's been 10 years since we've uh, been in that range. So uh, uh, we've gotten used to close to zero interest rates. That's not the way the world works in the, in the long term. And I think also people have uh, – uh, investors have, have come to expect the uh, increasing interest rates is incorporated into their decision making. So uh, it's not not a big deal anymore. And the Fed's not not uh, likely to uh, stop. They're going to go moderately into uh, higher rates for some time. And it seems like with this tight labor market, though, that would be kind of the beginnings of pushing up labor costs. Yeah. Uh, is that is that a significant component of inflation? Part of it, but I think uh, the other side of the coin is higher labor costs is also higher wages. And we haven't uh, had that uh, happen uh, very much until very recently. Uh, As uh, we talked about several times, we had first a jobless recovery. Then we started having uh, uh, jobs being created. Then we had a recovery where we had very little wage growth. That's starting to happen now, which is probably a good thing. And, again, there's always the problem. There are lots of people who – 
uh, don't have jobs. There are lots of businesses who want to hire people and they can't find yeah. them. So there's always this kind of mismatch situation, but it's I think, uh, lower now than it was in the past. And it's really, uh, as far as the interest rate, you know, alarms that people seem to be raising now, uh, but that's really an indication that the economy's stronger, is it not? Right, getting back it's to It's a natural yeah, you cycle. You would not want the uh, long-term interest rates to be zero, uh, suggesting that we're in a perpetual kind of recession. So I think it's actually a, a positive thing right now. And I think they've raised interest rates a quarter of a percent five times now. Yeah. That reminds me back in 2004 to 2006. Every time, I think there were seven or eight of them in a row, every time was a quarter of a percent. If, if they really feel the economy is as strong as, as it is, you know, or at least the nominal gross domestic product, et cetera. Why do they always lately, or at least in recent times, kind of make it that predictable? You can almost bet that it's going to be a quarter of a percent. Um, they've done it before where, they, you know, they have announced just why not do a half percent? I don't think they, they view it as any uh, immediate kind of problem. So doing it gradually, I think, is probably a a better thing for the markets. They don't view it as a, a, a kind of crisis situation where they have to act quickly as they might when, if they lowered rates drastically during a downturn or thought that inflation was in, in a uh, uh, unstable uh, stage, but it's not right now. So they have the luxury of doing this slowly. This is one thing uh, people probably are pleasantly surprised about, about how little the Fed has changed from uh, one administration to the other and one uh, one uh, person in charge to the other. So the Fed is, is carrying out pretty traditional kinds of activities right now. So pretty classical, and uh, uh, it, is, it seems a little bit like a Goldilocks scenario. Um, as I said, we've, kind of, we've had a couple of corrections this year. <coughs> Excuse me. We've been able to put those corrections, put money to use. Um, you know, I'm just a chicken, so anytime we take on new clients uh, at all-time highs, I tend to dollar-cost average, and the guys aren't as, you know, Daniel and David and... Ryan and Paul, they're not as chicken as I am. Uh, we're, I mean, we might even talk a little bit about that today. But I tend to, I'll take three to six months. And uh, so we had those opportunities when the market was down suddenly 10% to go ahead and put that money back to work. And I think, Dave, we're pretty much everybody, we've been dollar cost averaging in. We're pretty much there unless they've come in in the last week or two. Yeah, I think so. I can't think of anyone in particular that we're still doing that for. Yeah, and so, you know, towards yeah. the end of last year, we were, of course, we're chronically telling people at least once a year you want to look at your portfolio and your allocation. Yeah, the good news is that uh, those opportunities have been pre- pretty short. Uh, it goes down and comes back up fairly quickly. We, uh, we've said many times that uh, the, the world doesn't always work that way. You can't expect a correction to uh, be reversed in uh, six weeks, as has been the case in the last uh, couple of years or so. Uh, there's no question about it. And volatility's kind of declined and waned a bit. Uh, we, everybody's getting all excitable in January, February, a little bit in March. Uh, and uh, that's that seems to be waning. And it's But it's interesting. I was watching the flow of uh, money in and out of mutual funds. And kind of just like 2009 to th- 2013, when investors were really just kind of unsure about where's where's all this headed, uh, there were a lot of massive reductions, people selling into this bull market, which was a mistake, and we're kind of seeing that again in the recent data. I just thought that was kind of interesting. wanted to point that out. I want to go to Daniel. Um, Daniel recently wrote a blog addressing one of the most common questions we get from clients. Uh, really, anyone who's thinking about investing their money, uh, you know, called in the article's called, Is Now a Good Time to Invest?, which people can read at RudyWealth.com and those for watching Facebook we will be put a link in the comments. Um, so people rarely elaborate, Daniel, on what they mean by, hey, is this a good time to invest, or is this a good time to add money if they're thinking about it? Uh, but you mentioned in the blog there, there's, and, I, and I've, I've used this concept before, there's a question behind the question generally, you know, there's, or under the question. Uh, first, really, what they're asking you to do maybe is, hey, is this a good Time, it's really a timing decision, so a market timing aspect to it, or a prediction or a forecast. Uh, but behind the question, uh, I suppose there's this, is this going to hurt me? If I do this, am I going to regret it? Um, and, and we know, and we talk an awful lot about, about investing, and one of the things that really uh, investors struggle with is the emotional component of investing. And fortunately, and, you know, and that really centers around more about fear and regret than anything. Um, but there's really a way to kind of mitigate that. And you wrote that uh, post, which I thought was really good. Uh, so the, when we talk about that question behind the question, 
what is it about is the market going to go up? I mean, isn't that really what they're asking? Right. And each time, I mean, it, it's similar for all of us. We all go, well, you know, I don't really know where it's going to go over the next day or the next month or maybe in the next year. But what I can tell you is over long periods of time, you're going to be better off for this decision as long as, of course, your money belongs in the stock market. And that's the key. It's like, well, if you're asking me, look, uh, <clears throat> if my plan says, look, um, this new money, uh, because of where the, the plan is right now, uh, looks like most of it's headed for the stock market. Uh, so that's your whole point is, you know, we're not really deciding which one to put it in. Right. Saying, okay, Daniel, I know this needs to be in the stock market for me to achieve what I want to achieve and for my allocation to be aligned with what I want to have happen. Right. So that's kind of the prerequisite for it. Uh, and so then they're really asking then, is this a good time? Yeah. And I, I mean, we usually have a pretty good understanding of, you know, what, what the probability of you being up is versus, you know, down to the year, 10 years. So, you know, if they're saying, well, what, what's it going to look like in a year? I could pretty much only tell you, historically speaking, 64% of the time you'd be up over T-bills or something okay, like that. So if you're going to say, well... Uh, where they're saying, if I, if I don't put it in the stock market, I'm going to put it in something like a treasury bill. So it's like, what? So what they might be asking you is, am I going to do better than that? Right. And you're saying about two thirds of the time, historically speaking, the odds are that a year from now you will be glad that you put it in the stock market if it belonged in stocks in the in the beginning. Right. And then just five years, you're looking at sixty seven percent of the time, and then. 10, it goes up even more to 88% of the time, and then 15, it goes up to 91% of the time. And that's why it's important to look at what the money is for long-term. I think people think long-term is in a year. No, long-term's 10 years, but, uh, 15 uh, years. And, and you, you guys probably notice, I, I try not to use the term long-term if I can avoid it. I try to use the term lifetime. Uh, right. You know, look, you're going to own these for a lifetime. Now everybody's lifetime's different, and everybody gets that. But when we sit there and talk to the 70-year-old client and we say something like long-term, they'll say, well, they're thinking inside, well, wait a minute, your long-term, Daniel, at 26 <laughs> years old is different than my long-term. I'm going to go find a more. And, and, and so you're saying if you're a lifetime investor, uh, focus on that. I'm, I'm really in this for the duration. Right. And uh, so, so there you have the statistics. Um, I have found over my 35 years that, you know, I've always said, I wrote a newsletter one time, I'll probably recycle it. Historical doesn't compete with hysterical. <laughs> uh, you know, so we can talk about historical data, um, but really, in light of those statistics, uh, it's really this issue, we've talked about it before, this kind of this primal fear, this this primal condition of, am I going to regret this? Am I going to feel pain if I do this? Because people are trying to avoid that pain. Right. And I think that's where it's important to know what you're getting yourself into. Depending on your asset allocation, you should be able to look back at, I'd say, the last three bear markets and say, what would my portfolio have looked like at that point in time? And can I handle this? Right. Because that's a package deal. You know, you, and, and we do that uh, just as a practice. Um, we create an investment policy statement for each client. And part of that investment policy statement is, is, is kind of this kind of a memorandum of understanding. Look, let's memorialize all the conversations we've had prior to this. Here's where we're headed. Here's the time frame we're talking about. Here's what the purpose of the money is. Maybe it's to fund a retirement for the next two to three decades. Here's the allocation, asset allocation, which is how much in stocks versus bonds. And it's kind of all down into one or two easy-to-read pages, but part of that is Look, here's the asset allocation we've just, but let us remind you. And what's interesting about the last three bear markets, and a bear market is just a market decline that everybody agrees, generally speaking, is down to a broad U.S. market or a broad market decline of 20% or more. And it's, it, I, I find it, I call it the good, the bad, the ugly. I, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but when you look at the last three bear markets, well, we count 2011 as one, even though it was just a hair shy of being down 20% in the broad U.S. market. And a basic 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio might have been down 10 11%, 9 10 11%. That's pretty standard for that type of allocation. 
But when you go to 2008, 2009, I think it was down 35 or 36, 37%, which is highly unusual. So that's what's on the other side of typical. And then the one prior to that was 2000 to 2003, where the portfolio would have been down very little, which was highly unusual. So I call that one the good. The bad is typical one like 2011. And then 2008, 2009 was the ugly. Uh, Ed's trying to get a hold of me here. Is there something? Uh, I'm not seeing it on here, so uh, sorry about that, Ed. Uh, he'll come in here and yell at me, tell me what to do. Uh, so, you know, so emotions are, okay, Dr. Ed, this is all that's up there on the board. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we'll get, Ed's going to get me figured out here. He's got a lot of fancy stuff on there. Oh, okay, so we have a uh, text. Could you discuss the advantages and disadvantages? And Daniel, we'll get back to your blog. Could you discuss the advantages and disadvantages of an inherited IRA from a grandparent to a grandchildren? To grandchildren. Also, is there any limit on the amount that can be directed to grandchildren? They are in their 20s, and I thought the growth with a required minimum distribution could benefit both of them down the road. What are your guys' thoughts about that? I mean, look, uh, I guess it's coming from, a, is this a good idea for me as a grandparent to name one of my grandchildren as a beneficiary? Um, what say you guys? I think we can start with the obvious advantage of, you know, if if you're giving that inherited IRA directly to a grandchild instead of your child, the grandchild's going to be younger. And what that allows them to do is stretch out those required minimum distributions even longer. So the way, for the listeners who aren't familiar with inherited IRAs, the way they work is it's kind of like how after you turn 70 and a half, the government requires you to take a certain amount out of your IRA and pay taxes on it so that you can't just defer taxes forever. Well, the same thing applies to an inherited IRA. So when your whoever the beneficiary is inherits that IRA, they're going to have a required minimum distribution amount from that IRA every single year. And that amount depends on the age of the beneficiary. And so the younger the beneficiary, the smaller the amount, and the longer you get to stretch out, or in other words, keep the money in that IRA and let it keep growing tax-deferred. So if you're talking about maybe instead of a 50-year-old, a 20- or 30-year-old, that can be a, a fairly significant difference. And, uh, and it's a, it's a, when you think about it, if somebody's in their 20s, it might be a with required minimum distribution rate below 2% or so. And then each year, basically your life expectancy, you add a year to it, and then it's one over that number of years. Um, I don't see there's any downside in it at all, assuming that the – that they're responsible enough to handle it. Dan, your thoughts? Right. That's what I was going to say. I, I think one drawback is that although you have to take out that RMD, which is required minimum which is distribution, required minimum distribution, you need to make sure you're comfortable with your your grandkid, responsibly speaking, because. Right. He could take out the whole thing. It's theirs. You know, it's it's not like, well, he's only going to take out the RMD. It's like, well, if he's responsible and he understands it, maybe you explain up front, this is what I want for it, for you to have this for. Yeah, it's not and, unusual to kind of provide instructions with it. I've suggested right. to a number of my clients, that, look, just write, put it in writing. Uh, Mary, I've, I've, I've done this for you uh, upon my passing is for your retirement that's maybe 40 years down the road, my best advice is to just hold on to it and do nothing. And if you have to take the required minimum distribution, it doesn't mean you have to spend it. So you get to put a little lecture down on paper and you hope to do it. The other area is uh, Roth IRAs are also wonderful things to inherit. Of course, that's the tax-free version of it as long as you follow all the rules. And while they're still required minimum distributions, they're not taxable. Right. Uh, so uh, b both of those are wonderful things. Um, and there's a lot of grandparents that will tell their grandchildren or parents that will tell their younger children. Uh, just as an aside, while we're thinking about this <laughs> concept of of uh, helping our sprouts or our grand sprouts, um, that, look, if you have a summer job, for example, and maybe you make two or three thousand dollars and to incentivize incentivize that person, that child or grandchild, you say, look, if you'll put for every dollar you put in your Roth IRA, I'll match it uh, up to you get up to your maximum contribution. So I'll give you enough money that you can see your maximum earnings and we'll match it. And that's quite an incentive. And I've seen that work quite effectively at the same time. Yeah, that's the real 
issue. I mean, the, the, the magic of compound interest may escape the, uh, the knowledge the of, uh, of a, a 20 year old who yeah. has a several hundred thousand dollars coming their way. So yeah. maybe along with that letter, you put in a, uh, a time value of money chart, a compound interest chart, and highlight 40 years at, uh, say, 8% or 10% if you're looking at the long-term historical compounded average growth rate of the uh, U.S. broad market uh, with dividends reinvested. And uh, that maybe that will get their attention or, or maybe it won't. This is always a dilemma for parents and grandparents when we're talking about uh, leaving in a legacy or an inheritance to young sprouts is most of the time, of course, there are ways to control it. You can create trust, et cetera, for, for children that you that knowingly can't handle a big lump sum of money, and that's not all that complicated. But generally speaking, uh, most people like to leave it you know, to their children or grandchildren outright and hope that they'll do the right thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing down your wishes with a little information, a book or two. Maybe the, maybe the check is in the middle of a really good book, uh, like investment <laughs> policy statement or... Uh, by uh, Charles Ellis or uh, a book on common sense on mutual funds by Jack Bogle uh, from the Vanguard Group. Uh, you know, there's several of them that might be worthy uh, constituents to do that for. So I don't see any downside to it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd like somebody to – I'd be happy to inherit something. You have to do yeah. it very, very carefully, too, uh, when you transfer an IRA that if it's not done correctly, you there's a five-year five rule. Right. So uh, – you want to make sure, as you're saying, you want to make sure your beneficiary designations are all properly done, and check with your advisor or your your lawyer to make sure that you're not going to do something that instead of being able to take advantage of that lifetime stretch rule, that you're forced to take it out over a five year period, and it's a much shorter period. This comes down to when there's multiple beneficiaries, for example, or or of trust that's trying to be set up as a bypass trust that isn't really quite drafted properly, and some of the people are not individuals they're they're maybe institutions and there's some real clutter there you just want to be careful uh, about how you do that's a good point fred because you don't you know you don't want to inadvertently have that stretch ability to stretch out those payments maybe over 50 or 60 years shortened to five but that's easily remedied or even uh, people will miss required minimum distribution sometimes. I mean, how many 20 or 30-year-olds know what a required minimum distribution is? Well, they should get it from their institution, but in the event they don't, then the penalties are pretty harsh. Yeah. Uh, 50%, I I think. Of the amount that you didn't pay, but should have. Right. And uh, so you really got to, you want to follow the rules, but that's any uh, any reasonably good advisor can walk you down that path, Um, us included even. We could even do that. Uh, Daniel, getting back to your blog, uh, just kind of about emotions and the question under the question of, is this a good time to invest? And really, is this a good time to invest in the stock market? Um, you mentioned, uh, which I think is the key ingredient, is if if, you, if, if if that question is answered in the backdrop of a plan, mm-hmm. uh, that really kind of mitigates and really reduces that emotional aspect of it, does it not? Yeah, because it's kind of giving your money meaning because... If you're just looking at your portfolio fluctuate, you might be scared because you don't know what it actually means for you. Is it going to affect my life that there is this decline? But when you have a portfolio in relation to a plan, then you get to say, okay, well, my portfolio did decline X amount. Well, can I still spend the amount I'm spending? Do I still get to go on the vacation I'm spending? You know, things like that. So I think it's important to And then you can look at those things and just be like, okay, well, I know this decline happened, but it looks like my plan's still okay. I can still spend the amount I want to spend. And I see for clients that gives them a lot of reinsurance to go about their day, you know? In other words, we've anticipated what you're afraid of. What you're afraid of, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Rudy, is you're afraid that you're going to put this in the exactly wrong time. You, You feel like you're that person that could be the author of the book, How Come Investments Work Until I Buy Them? And I understand that. But please understand that we've anticipated much worse. I I assure you we have anticipated declines, not predicted, anticipated declines in your plan that are much worse than you're anticipating. And that's part of the package deal. If, if, If you don't feel like that is settling enough, it might be getting in the way of them actually funding their plan with the allocation proper. This is where we get back to dollar cost averaging. So I'm going to ask each of you a question. I'm not in the room because, you know, I'm highly opinionated 
as you know, um, a new client comes in and uh, you do a plan for them. And right now, 30% of their assets are in the stock market, 70%, and you're, you haven't done anything yet. You just showed them your plan, and your plan says that they should have 60% in the stock market instead of 30% of, of their money over their lifetime. Um, we're 5 or 6% from all-time highs today. David, I'll go with you first. I'm not in the room. Are you going to dollar-cost average? And there's, and there's no right or wrong here. Just I'm trying to give the listeners... Uh, Someone uh, sent us a text a, a show or two ago. There are things we disagree about. <clears throat> this might be one of them, and there's no right or wrong. Are you going to dollar cost? What are you going to do? That person's, they have 30% now. They need 60. When are they going to get to 60% stocks? I think the answer is that it depends on the person's specific situation. Um, so an example where I, I would likely dollar cost average would be if someone's going to be taking fairly heavy portfolio withdrawals. So say it's uh, someone who's just about to retire, okay. and the plan says, okay, we need to increase their equity allocation from where it is now, uh, and starting a month from now, we're going to start withdrawing X dollars per month. You know, that's just switching to retirement in general is already emotionally taxing enough. Doing that, increasing your equity is going to be emotionally taxing, and you're more sensitive to portfolio declines during that time frame. So that's a situation where I might propose typically – I like to invest at least half right off the bat. Now they're already kind of there, um, so so you're going to you're going to split it. You're going to say, well, you're thirty percent. Um, I'm going to cut the the other thirty percent that belongs in. I'm going to put in half of that. So now I'll be forty five percent stocks uh, towards my sixty percent goal. Right, and then I'd probably dollar cost average over the next six months or so. But I would have a discussion with the client first. I wouldn't just do it. Um, reason being, I know that objectively, going back to the statistics that Daniel mentioned, you know, about two-thirds of the time, you're going to be worse off for having dollar-cost average. Um, so you just exp- Compared to you, just keeping it in a money market fund or bonds. Exactly. So you just explain that to, cl- to the client. You say, look, in the grand scheme of things, it really won't make a difference, but chances are you're prob- it's probably going to cost you a little bit to do this. Um, make sure that they're okay with that. Explain your rationale for right. thinking that dollar cost averaging is appropriate. You've got a lot of emotional kind of stuff on your plate right now to deal with. And I think in the long term, it's going to make this whole process a he- heck of a lot easier. Um, so that's one. The flip side of that is say it's someone who isn't taking portfolio withdrawals at all. It's a 40 year old. And for whatever reason, they have a, you know, mostly bond allocation. I'm going to say, look, we're going to your target allocation right now because it's irrelevant if the market goes down right. immediately after we we go all in. As long as you can keep your head, we're not selling anything. You should be a little bit less emotionally sensitive to that. So because of that, the fact that it's just totally irrelevant if the market goes down over the next year when you have another 60 years to invest, I'm going to suggest just putting it all in at once. And Daniel, you. I I mean, Dave was spot on. I, I just, like he said, there's an optimal way to do things. And then there's reality. probably, yeah, the reality of it. And that's just the reality. Some people can't handle just going in all at once. So just find a happy medium. I mean, over a long term, in the grand scheme of themes, it's not going to be like a huge deal. It's it doesn't not, really move the needle all that much yeah. from a financial planning standpoint but from an emotional standpoint it might move the needle yeah. a lot well, I, I, uh, I was going to ask you Fred kind of what's your, what's yeah, your spin my, on this after my uh, logical spin is uh, you know put it in today I actually had a situation where with a foundation where there were uh, <laughs> like uh, several million dollars that had to be put into the stock market and I flinched and, and uh, put it in over uh, several months yeah. And actually, it turned out tremendously lucky. Uh, it was uh, beginning of 2016, oh, so cool. we spread it out. So, so it turned out it looked like I was really smart, but I was just uh, afraid to go all the way. Yeah, and the, and the problem when people do that, or, or the majority of people, is um, it, it can easily train you to think, well, that's always the way to do it. Um, and, and like you said, you admit it, it's, it's really luck because you, you don't it's unpredictable. Come, if you make a big change, you don't want to come back to the board after two months, I say we've lost ten percent of the investment. So it's partially a, a kind of cosmetic uh, situation. The, the way I think of it is like the cost in terms of potentially foregone returns is going to be relatively small over your lifetime. 
the cost to never getting to the allocation that you need is huge. The cost to panicking because the market tanks right after you get to your allocation is huge if you sell out because you panicked. And I think that's where you say it up front. You really have that thorough discussion saying, look, odds on you'll wish you would have done it all today before sundown. However, recognizing that the first year or two of retirement when you don't have a paycheck any longer uh, that's showing up on a steady basis, you're not adding money to a 401k. You're actually spending money from your 401k. So we've gone from accumulation to decumulation. That's just where it has to take a little bit of finesse and an explanation. And generally the clients, uh, the, you know, most of the time I think if we're near all-time highs, they seem to be more comfortable dollar cost averaging into the position. We don't do it overly slowly. But the other thing you guys will do, and I know I do this, is suppose that you take that, you, you take that client you talked about, you take half of it, you put it in today, and you're going to dollar cost average the balance maybe over the next six months. And then you get a market correction like we had in January and February, March, a couple of 10% down, pretty, pretty quick declines. That's when you can speed it up at your convenience, correct? Yeah, you can. And I think the key is just to realize that there's nothing scientific about that. And it's not like you can guarantee that you're not going to put, you know, put maybe a double contribution in and then it continues to go down from there. There's always that possibility. So I think I think you just have to realize kind of those considerations if you're going to consider speeding things up. But like you said, chances are, say it's even more extreme, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent decline. You know, it's it's probably not a bad idea to just yeah. so get Fred. To your it's, it's hard to guess too. I I've told her story several times, but uh, I make contributions to the uh, five twenty nine plan to my grandchildren, and my strategy is always to wait for uh, a dip. But I never get the dip right. I end up uh, doing it in uh, uh, December every year, uh, close to the market high. Yeah, so, so it, waiting around for the the right time is. Uh, it's harder to do than it is to think about it. So, Fred, one of your children inherits uh, $200,000 from Aunt Betty <clears throat> today. And they say, Dad, uh, this is going to be for retirement. This, I think this is just going to be the last piece that fits my retirement puzzle. I think I'm in good shape with this delightful inheritance. Um, it seems to me, Dad, that uh, most of it probably belongs in the stock market at my age because I still have... 10 or 15 years before, or maybe 20, before I actually need to call upon the money. Uh, now what's your advice? Well, again, realistically, I, I, if I that would, happened today, what, what I would, would do you? what uh, uh, David said. I'd say put half of it in now and then uh, put it in over the next uh, several months just to avoid the uh, uh, having a shock where they might the, uh, the child might uh, be afraid of the market for years to come. And I think yeah. people underestimate those shocks. I, I think that's that surprise, they should never be surprised, but people in general are surprised every time the market tends to do what it normally does, uh, perfectly normal cyclical declines. And, uh, but they always, seem, they always seem to be surprised nonetheless. And uh, so this is the side of the business that we're kind of letting people in on is, you know, it's never, nothing is cut and dry. This is where getting to know your client, getting to know their personality kind of how they feel and talk about money, how they grew up around money, how they feel about just all these emotional things. Um, and so I think that was worthy of talking about. And that was, that was a really good blog. And I would uh, blog and I would uh, uh, blog. I'm thinking of Blagojevich, I think. Um, really good blog, Daniel, at blog. Now, go, yeah. One other point, too. Uh, uh, any kind of insurance comes at a cost. So if you want to insure your portfolio, portfolio you could do yourself a mix of uh, – Bonds and stocks, there are also ways of, of trying to insure it, but it, it's expensive. So you have to ask yourself, how much would I pay to avoid a one-year downturn and paying 1% a year forever to, uh, right. to avoid a, a, a downturn, which is going to recover in the next year or two, is probably not a, a very good investment. So it, people, that, insurance can come in various ways. You can kind of self-insure by having a balanced portfolio. You can buy various kinds of instruments that guarantee a uh, lower the downside risk, but those are usually very expensive kinds of uh, options. Right. There's trade-offs, and, uh, and really all what people should hope for with their advisor is to show me the trade-offs. And it's different, too. I mean, if you buy insurance on your house, uh, if your house burns down, it's not going to regenerate itself. Right. But generally, a, a market downturn will... Uh, so far. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as... 
I mean, it's almost, you know, when I talk to clients, you know, I, of course, I'm the eternal optimist, but I just look at the, the stock market as just a collection of all these really bright business people that innovate and make things better and cheaper all the time. And so to me, there's, as long as one has a lifetime to consider, the, the uptrend is permanent. Well, we maybe we don't know the slope of it. We don't know whether over our lifetime we're going to earn ten percent compounded, six percent, four percent, or nine percent. There's a distribution of outcomes, but but it, it's kind of safe to say. Well, it's not safe to say because if I was on the radio or I put in print that the stock market always recovers, it's always. Let's put it differently. It's always going to recover. I'd probably get in trouble for that because right. well, you can't say that it's always going to recover. Yeah, but if, but if it didn't, Fred, yeah. over one's lifetime, if it didn't recover, what would what would it require? The stock market goes from twenty five thousand to twelve thousand. Fifty years from now, it's still not above fifty thousand. Yeah, but it, but it did. Re- I guess it still recovered from its lows. Right. Well, let's just say it didn't recover from its lows. It went to twelve. Gets cut in half. And goes to twelve thousand five hundred and never leaves there. Well, what, 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 you're in bad shape, regardless. I mean, yeah. you really got economic well, I mean, again, collapse and reset. Again, uh, if we were, which could happen, if we were speaking Spanish in Argentina, uh, we'd have to think about some uh, some negative one hundred percent in there. Uh, so if you, if you have a negative one hundred percent return in a year, you're out of business. Yeah. But we've never had that in the United States, and no one foresees but you that. But you can't say it's impossible. Yeah, but in that case. Uh, there's no safe haven in, in in those kind of situations. So I guess it's for practical purposes. We always want to say, look, if you give it enough time, it, which is nebulous, right? I don't know yeah. if that's three years, five years, twenty years from now. There's no there's no assurances that yeah. the stock market will be higher than it is today, twenty yeah. years from now. Probably going to be right. if history's any guide, yeah. and it's the only guide we well, have. We'd be unfortunate though. Uh, you know, Germany had two uh, war situations where the market was wiped out. But we haven't had that, and no one expects. Well, that you know, to Fred, yeah. when you go to war with the world, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, know, you know, it's well, one thing to go to war with another country, but when you pick yeah. on the world, that's probably yeah. not a good idea. It's a no, just a more support for kind of international diversification too, not just investing in your home country, because yeah. who knows what can happen to a single country? But chances are that's not going to happen. Is, to every isn't single that the lesson of uh, of Japan, Fred? Right. I mean, remind people. Uh, from the 80s uh, when the Nikkei was on yeah. on fire and it went to 40,000 and I think today it's somewhere around 20 or 25,000. Yeah. So there's that 30 year period where yeah. it hasn't recovered. And that was a real test to uh, uh, using the market cap weighting as a index because uh, the international index became uh, strongly uh, Japanese during that period of time. And in retrospect, that everyone knew it was a bubble. They, they shouldn't have been there. But, of course. But they didn't know it, <laughs> know it was happening. But think about a Japanese investor. You know, I, I've, I've said to clients before, and I don't mean it really in a negative way. I say, I don't trust any country with 100% of my money, not even my own. Yeah. And if I was going to trust one country with my money, it would be this one. Um, but think about that Japanese investor. If they had 50% of the Japanese stock market, this is a broad market, and 50% Standard & Poor's 500 index. Now, they didn't have spectacular returns, but they had reasonably respectful uh, returns for the next 30 years instead of really what turned out to be a disaster for many investors. Right. And so that's a good point about this is all, you know, we always circle back to certain things, and diversification is one of them. There's always a benefit, even when you wish it wouldn't sometimes. I guess there's, an al- there's always a benefit to diversification, but it doesn't mean there's always a better return because of diversification. You're getting some type of benefit. Daniel, you were quoted in U.S. news article, Mr. Big Pants there. <laughs> uh, and it's on the social media page of our website as well. But I thought it was an interesting article because – simplification is a big theme when it comes to people when they retire. They seem to all of a sudden, if they haven't been people that wanted to simplify, there seems to be more focus on simplification of our financial affairs. Um, You know, why did you feel like you wanted to add to that article in U.S. News? I thought it was kind of interesting because I think sometimes as financial advisors, we feel like everything needs to be very technical. And at I was just like, no, this is a simple question. Sometimes when you have too many accounts, you get older and you forget about some. I mean, it's as simple as that. And that's pretty much what I said in the article. In the last three years, you've seen that. And I've seen that. And it's something that people don't really talk about much. But it is something that really affects a person, too. If 
someone passes away and they have no clue how many accounts they have or anything like that. I mean, we're dealing with it right now with someone. They're like, hey, I found another IRA the other day. And it just, it adds another layer of stress. And you don't want to do that, especially later in retirement. So why not simplify why you can't? Do some people, Dave and, and Daniel, and maybe even Fred, um, kind of confuse? Like, well, if I if I simplify and have fewer accounts, and maybe they're all at one place instead of several places, that somehow that's a layer of diversification I'm giving up. Is that is is there a tendency to think, well, maybe that's having all my eggs in one basket? I think psychologically that definitely plays a role with a lot of people. Um, I think they forget, though. Still, first of all, there's just downsides to having your your accounts scattered among amongst a, diff- a bunch of different places um, as well so you have to kind of weigh those but you know at the end of the day I think people forget that you know if you're a really like a passively invested investor like we suggest you're using which you mean funds, you're not trying to out time the market you're not trying to outperform it by picking and choosing winning stocks versus losing stocks because that's a loser's game right so if you're invested in that way, you're basically owning most of the stocks across the entire global stock market and bonds across the global bond market. It really doesn't matter the number of mutual fund companies that you use because you're owning all of the stocks in all of the companies. It's just unnecessary name diversification. Or if you have two financial advisors and both are owning super diversified mutual funds, you're you're ending up in the same place with more complication. So... We, we have a pretty strong position on this, and some people think it's self-serving, uh, and it's not, because I'm very careful the way I phrase this, but I, my experience um, is if you have two advisors, you really don't have any. Uh, it's kind of the old saying, if you, a person that chases two rabbits doesn't catch one, and it's this idea, and so I always tell people, look, begin to simplify, and part of simplification is find one advisor if you're going to use an advisor. Don't try to use several. You're never going to end up with a cohesive, coherent plan. But pick the one carefully. And I always tell them, look, it doesn't have to be me, but my best advice is find a really good advisor. Fred, if someone had all of their money, I'm not promoting any particular firm, whether it's a Fidelity or had all of their money at Vanguard or Charles Schwab, um, anything to be overly concerned about that? Uh, I have all all my financial accounts at one major brokerage firm. Well, again, I'm not a, a legal expert, but my understanding is that uh, you own the underlying stocks. So if uh, something goes uh, wrong with the institution, the ultimate fallback is you somehow get the, the value of the stocks themselves. So it doesn't protect you against a market downturn, but you are protected against uh, some kind of failure with the, uh, the brokerage firm, which means you don't want to, again, I think you said the, many times that you generally don't write out a check to uh, a person, your advisor. You, your advisor, you write out a check to uh, someone who's uh, some institution. There's usually respond. a custodian that's a third party uh, when you're working with an advisor where people get into trouble is when they don't. As you said, um, the first time I heard about Bernie Madoff and that scandal and all the billions of dollars that were lost, somebody asked me, well, how do you think that happened? I said, I know how it happened. I don't have to know it. I don't have to read anything about it. I know how it happened. That that money was commingled with Bernie Madoff's money. That is, they actually took custody of that money. So when you're, if you have a financial advisor, what I would I would suggest that nobody hand over custody of their assets to their financial advisor. You can hand over the authority to place trades or to send you money at your address. Uh, things like that, but you never want to give custody. So, you know, if it's if it's Bill Smith Company financial advisor, you wouldn't want to be making checks out to Bill Smith and Company. You'd want to see something like a, you know, a, a Meritrade or a Charles Schwab. I'm just naming some of the most popular ones with financial advisors: Schwab, Vanguard, Fidelity. Uh, there's others. There's, there's there's many others. It could be local. It could be a local bank, uh, a trust company. For example, that's what you want. You want that layer. So one of the things you want to also be always be careful of is, look, if I'm going to entrust my lifestyle, because that's what you're doing. You're not entrusting your money when you hand it over to an advisor, financial advisor. You're handing over your lifestyle. You at least want to be in a position where nobody can steal it. I mean, right. That yeah, seems to be pretty fundamental. This doesn't uh, eliminate market risk, but it does eliminate default risk of you know, an institution, something of that sort. So even, you know, um, Insurance companies can even have problems in sure. terms of uh, – so there's no 
But you, ultimately, you have have control of the assets themselves. That's the, all the assets are segregated at these major brokerage firms. I, the only time where it looked a little bit concerning is when MF Global, a few years back, maybe it's five years now, um, went under. There seemed to be a little mixing of assets, but it turned out that that, from what I read, uh, those were people that uh, that were had margin accounts. Once you have a margin account, which means that you've signed the ability to borrow money against your securities, <coughs> which also means a lot of other things, it just means it's a little easier for the brokerage firm to get in there and play around with your money. I mean, in general terms, it, it opens up that little layer that isn't there if you have what's called a cash account, which is just, look, I'm just going to buy securities. I'm going to own those securities. You're going to put them in book name and with my name on them, as Fred said. Then if a brokerage firm goes under, um, and, and they can go under. We saw Lehman Brothers go under. We saw, uh, well, there's Lehman and uh, Bear Stearns. Yeah, Bear Stearns. There, there are a number of them. And that's not what caused people problems. I mean, if they owned Bear Stearns stock, they were they had trouble. If they had Lehman Brothers they, stock, they had trouble, or Lehman Brothers bonds. But for people that had their brokerage accounts in a cash account, I'm not aware of anybody that had any issues as far as getting their money back because those assets are segregated from the firm's own. And then there's, of course, there's uh, SIPC insurance up to a certain levels, half a million dollars typically. And then most brokerage firms um, tend to carry other blanket coverage for hundreds of millions of dollars. But you just don't ever want to be in a position where somebody has your advisor has custody of your funds. Then they, then, so that's one layer you want to, uh, you know, I know we're going off a little bit of a tangent, but I thought as long as we're just kind of talking in general terms here, these are probably important things to know. So that's one. Uh, the other is, well, okay, so we can't steal my money. Well, maybe they can do something bad. Well, you owe it. There's a certain responsibility investors have. Uh, I think, uh, let's, oh, okay. I'm going to go to a text. Um, my daughter, sorry for jumping all over. My daughter is going to receive an insurance settlement for injuries in an accident, maybe $200,000 or more. She's 17, about to turn 18. I'm concerned about negative impact to our FAFSA college funding application. Also, do you have any advice about an annuity for yearly disbursements dealing with a young person with too much cash too quick? Well, I've done a lot of expert witness work uh, for law firms that, where this question comes up a bit, the latter part of the question is, are we better to take a structured deal or are we better to take a lump sum? You really want to have a really good financial advisor who is in really good command of the numbers and really figure out what they're offering you because many, many times the way they structure these offerings are in a way that's very tricky, hard to figure out, and you don't end up getting, when I say money, I mean purchasing power. You know, uh, structured settlements can really leave you short. That's why a lot of insurance companies like to have structured settlements. They know they have a better command of the numbers most of the time than even the attorneys, unless they have a really good expert witness. So I've been able to do that. So my advice there uh, is to find a really good financial advisor that can crunch those numbers and show you basically side-by-side, look, here's the pros of taking that structured settlement. Here's the cons. Here's the pros of taking the lump sum and investing it. But here's the cons. And there are pros and there are cons. Some people, that doesn't mean people shouldn't take structured settlements. For some people, it's the only appropriate way that they're not going to make it out alive if they don't have a structured settlement. Some people are better off and can handle taking the lump sum, and it's more beneficial to them. As far as FAFSA, Dave, uh, boy, I don't know. I, I haven't really come across that where somebody got, usually it's an injury, it's, you know, a settlement uh, for these types of things. Uh, I, I, it's it's tax-free, but I don't know how that would impact FAFSA. That's one thing I've never, I've really haven't come across. I would that. think it'd at least be counted as an asset. Well, it would be. Day one, if you took a, a lump sum, it would be an asset. Now, if you took the annuity stream, it's going to be an income stream. Right. And and as far as comparing those two and the impact on FAFSA, that's kind of outside my level of expertise when it comes to college funding. Yeah, yeah. It's strange that... Uh, College age is actually more complicated than the income tax laws. I sort of yeah. understand the income it, tax laws. It can laws. be. Um, again, there's also another question whether the uh, – I think whether the uh, uh, damages are being paid for uh, you know, pain and suffering right. versus lost income. So that might be an important question to uh, have, have the lawyer look at. I think there's – you really want to tie into somebody who's an expert who, does, who lives and breathes 520 – or college uh, planning, not 529 planning, uh, college financial planning. And – 
I've even gone over to the U of I office here, and they're pretty knowledgeable over there about about these things. So sometimes, since you're in a university town, so you just especially in the summertime, more availability, and they're they've been at least historically speaking to me, uh, been pretty available to talk about such things. And I think that might be a really great place to start right over here at the University of Illinois if they'll accommodate that. And I wouldn't be surprised if they would. Um, guys, well, we, we've talked a lot of stuff today. We've got a couple minutes to go. We talked about your blog, Daniel, uh, about the question under the question, is this a good time to be in the market or, or is this a good time to invest? We, we handled that, I think, pretty thoroughly. Uh, simplification. We're big proponents of it. Daniel was mentioned in U.S. News in an article. That's why we brought that up. Uh, there is a certain reluctance to simplify, but the benefits, we we get to see the benefits to it because as people get older, I think by the time they're 65, they begin to lose about 1% of their cognitive ability from what I read, uh, the way I understand it. Uh, anecdotally, that seems to be true to me. This for my 35 years of seeing people go from their 50s to their mid-80s or 90s even. And uh, But simplification has a lot of benefits. It benefits the client. It benefits the children. There are some effective ways to do it as long with simplification. We have Everplans uh, that we provide for our clients. I'm sure other firms have their versions of things or have the same version, which not only allows you to get to that simplification of how many accounts you have and where they're all scattered about, then recording them where your children or certain children have access to the information in a very sensible fashion, a very orderly fashion, and you kind of take that in baby steps. So I think that's pretty good. Fred, I guess we're just going to put up with more interest rate increases, mortgage rates. Yeah, one one uh, quick thing. Yeah, Fred. I went to a meeting this week about taxes. So people who are running small businesses have some important decisions, and no one knows how to deal with them. There's a new pass-through rule, and and, uh, people probably should be thinking about that, but it's almost too soon to know what to do right now i agree there's 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 still some pretty significant confusion about some of the tax laws that were passed recently and uh, well we're glad everybody was able to listen today this is paul rudy for dr fred gertz daniel rudy and david rudy thanks for listening to on the money join us for the second and fourth tuesday of each month for paul rudy's on the money Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.